You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 46. Today we're asking the question, is risk compensation a real thing? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode of the Safety of Work podcast, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, you wanted to do this question today, so do you want to start with telling us a little bit about the background and what the question is? So David, we've talked before about the concept of a deepity. Adipity is something that's got two meanings. One of them is trivial and true. And then there's a deeper meaning which sounds profound, but is actually false or nonsensical. And so today we're going to be looking at a deepity that often comes up in safety called risk compensation. Uh, sometimes it's also called risk homeostasis, or longer time ago it got called the Peltzman effect. So risk compensation is the idea that when we introduce protections to make people safer, people adjust their own behaviour in order to compensate. So it's got a trivial true meaning. When we perceive risk differently, we behave differently. That's fairly obvious and it's true. But that's not what the proponents of risk compensation claim. They go further and they claim that there is a fairly strong and consistent effect where people change their behaviour in response to safety improvements. And they change their behaviour so much that it cancels out most or even all of the benefit of the safety improvement. So it gets used for things like vaccines or bicycle helmets or seatbelts and claims that these safety improvements are not in fact improvements because people change their behaviour to compensate. And so just to be clear, this is nonsense. In this episode, we're going to go through the history and theory of risk compensation, and then we're going to have a look at the evidence. Because not everyone listens all the way through a podcast, I don't want anyone to drop out halfway through when we've explained the theory but not explained the evidence, and so that's why I'm giving the spoilers up front and saying that the theory doesn't make sense. It doesn't even make sense theoretically, and it certainly doesn't make sense once you look at the data. But it's a good illustration of what happens if you just cherry-pick one or two studies about something. Because there are definitely studies that exist that show that risk compensation works. And so that's why it's really important when we're talking about evidence-based safety to examine the body of evidence rather than just one or two papers. And yeah, when, when you look systematically at risk compensation, the effect disappears. So before we go into some of the details, David, anything you'd like to say about your own experience with the idea? Yeah, I thought about two examples, Drew, and these might be more aligned to how behavior gets modified when risk is perceived differently as opposed to the more general theory of risk compensation broadly. But when we're seeing a lot of new safety equipment in, let's just say, sporting endeavors like extreme sports, and I was thinking of big wave surfing where they've now got inflatable vests and jet skis and portable oxygen canisters for when they get held down by big waves. And I think we've been progressively seeing more and more extreme situations that these athletes put themselves in because of the measures that are available. And I suppose I thought that that would be one of those types of examples where the level of risk may be quite static because of the balancing effect of taking on more risk because of the more controls that are available for them. And the other one that I thought of was a conversation I had with a manager at a site once. And when I asked him what he was most worried about, he told me that he was worried that his people thought 
that the site wasn't dangerous. And this was a large major hazard facility. And he thought, because we talk to them so much about safety and they do so much paperwork about safety and they've done so much safety training, there's so much safety messaging. He was of the view that he thought that the workers were going to be less cautious in their work because they thought things were much safer than they were. So Drew, there were, were two examples. I don't know if they're in line with the broad theory of risk compensation or just about risk perception. Yeah, th- thanks for those examples, David. Uh, I think those are the sort of things that show the difficulty in thinking around this sort of topic. Because we can have things that are very self-evidently true, that if you have a site where people are complacent, that's probably more dangerous than if people are alert to the risk. And we can have situations with extreme groups at the sort of extremes of risk tolerance, where they use risk protections as justification for taking more and more risks as they push the envelope. So those things are definitely real effects that happen. And one of the problems with risk compensation is the way that people make lots of arguments by analogy from some of these corner cases into claiming that there's some sort of universal general effect. So let's go through the history of the idea, and then we'll talk about a couple of papers that throw in the evidence. So the idea originally comes, oddly enough, like a lot of stuff about risk from economics rather than from safety science. And people may know that until relatively recently, economists liked to model humans as if we were all hyper-rational actors. And the idea is each human has got a set of utility functions, which is adding together all the positives and negatives of any action we might take. And we take an action when the positives outweigh the negatives. Now, lots of modern economists disagree with that idea, but it was very, very popular in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even on to the 80s a bit. So, you know, my utility function for buying a chocolate bar might be the positive value of enjoying chocolate minus my fear of gaining weight minus the cost of the chocolate bar. And the economist would say that if my fear of gaining weight increased or if the price of the chocolate bar increased, then I'm less likely to buy the chocolate bar. And so a guy called Sam Peltzman applied this idea in 1975 to traffic regulations. And his argument was that as car safety increased, the expected cost of dangerous driving decreased, so drivers were more likely to do what he called driving intensity behaviours. So that covers everything from drink driving to speeding to just carelessness. He sort of lumped it all together and said that the car gets safer, driving intensity increases. Now, there is, of course, a massive problem with his argument, which was that there was zero evidence that driving intensity had in fact increased, and there was clear evidence that the number of traffic fatalities was decreasing over time, in particular in response to a big raft of legislation that the US had put in place in the 1960s to improve traffic safety. But that didn't stop Peltzman. So he conducted a detailed statistical analysis. David, I know how much you'd love statistics. Did you have a look at the Peltzman paper? I actually didn't. Well, I, I scanned it, but I um, went very fast through the statistics. Yeah, the, the paper is filled with tables and pretty much into every table goes heaps of assumptions and his justifications for why those assumptions make sense. So he says things like that the private value of safety is increasing along with wage inflation. As people get richer, they care more about dying. He claims that oh, we can't measure how fast drivers are actually going, but we can use the speed limits as, an assum- as a measure of whether drivers are going faster or slower. He thinks that arrests for drunk driving are a good estimate for how much drunk driving there was. 
you know, ignoring the fact that when we're blitzing against drunk driving, that's when you get all of the arrests. So hopefully you get the picture. You know, if you accept that all of his assumptions are correct, then maybe you can get to the same claim that he did, that even though the number of deaths is going down, safety regulation has nothing to do with it. So that was the original idea, the Peltzman effect, 1975. So he used this argument about traffic safety actually as a broader argument. He said there's this psychological effect that as technological safety increases, driving intensity or whatever risk behavior we're talking about increases, and the two cancel out. But you know, keep in mind that there isn't evidence that the dangerous behavior does actually increase. The evidence comes all from this statistical analysis to show that the risk hasn't increased on balance. So then we come to Gerald Wilde. And in 1982, he proposed an even stronger version of the theory that he called risk homeostasis. He removed all the rest of the utility function. So he purely said that individuals have a target level of risk that they're willing to accept. So if the amount of risk they experience goes down, they'll start taking more risky behavior to compensate. If the amount of risk they experience goes up, they'll start taking safer behavior to compensate. So the logical implication of that is that the only way to make someone safer is to change their target level of risk, not to change their actual level of risk. Now, that's not me extrapolating. That's Wilde's explicit claim, that nothing society does to improve safety by reducing risk will work. The only way to improve safety is to change the target level of risk that the population is willing to accept. I mean, that's fairly close to some of the mainstream approaches that we've taken with things like safety culture and and some of the programs is actually been about trying to get people to care more about safety for the last 20 or 30 years. So is that, I mean, could I think of that as being what Wilde was saying there, actually that getting people to care more is a good thing to do? Well, if you're looking for a justification for why it might make sense to spend nothing on actually improving the safety of your worksite and spend everything on just blaming your workers for it and making them feel responsible for the safety, then this is the perfect theory for you, because it does make that sort of behaviour rational if you believe the theory. Because we do talk a lot in organisations about the hazard awareness and the risk perception of the workforce and getting them to you know, not tolerate a, a higher level of risk or, or to, to tolerate lower levels of risk than what they might currently be doing. So I'm seeing pretty strong alignment in some of those conversations with, uh, with this theory. I think to be fair to the people who promote those theories, though, often it comes from a frustration that they feel that they've done everything that they technically can do, that they feel that they've already improved the physical environment, they've already improved the physical safety, they've already provided the equipment. And I think it's it's reasonably sensible if you feel that you've done all of that to say, okay, all that's left is to change the attitudes and behaviours because I've changed everything else. Whereas Wilde is saying that all that point up to there is a waste of time. You're not improving safety by making the work happen on the ground instead of up in the air. You're not improving safety by giving people the right tools. You're not improving safety by getting them to wear a helmet. Because all those things, people will just behave more dangerously to compensate. So, so yeah, I think there is a, is a difference between whether you see behaviour change as an add-on to technical safety or whether you see it as an alternative. You pick one or the other. So how does Wilde get to this theory? He uses lots of argument by analogy, and he uses very little direct evidence. So I'm not going to go through and sort of nitpick every bit of evidence he uses, but one of the early examples is a 1964 experiment 
that measured skin conductivity for 20 drivers. Now, I don't know about you, David, I've tried to do experiments with things like skin conductivity with 2020 technology, and the amount of artifacts and aberrations you get make it impossible to do field experiments well. We're talking 1960s technology, 20 drivers. And the authors of that study basically concluded that their measurement technique had lots of unexplained variability, which doesn't surprise me at all. Your skin conductivity sensors spike when someone moves their hands. And they were doing things like having the same driver does the exact same course and gets totally different results. They were getting spikes with nothing external to the car that could possibly explain it. So it's a really dodgy little study. And the authors were honest about its limitations. But Wilde picked that study up and claimed that it provided strong evidence that drivers regularly adjust their speed to keep the amount of risk they experience constant. So he sort of picked one study that doesn't say much and interpreted it as strong evidence for his theory. In preparation for this episode, I sent you an article that I was I became very familiar with in the early 2000s. It was a Wild and Ward paper in 1996 published in Safety Science, and it was titled Driver Approach Behaviour at an Unprotected Railway Crossing Before and After Enhancement of Lateral Sight Distances. And, and this study, we were having a lot of tr- trouble at the time in Queensland with unprotected level crossings, particularly out in the sugarcane fields um, with cane farmers and, and trucks. And, you know, at certain times of the year when the sugarcane is high, these crossings don't have a lot of visibility for the little uh, the little cane trains and things like that. So so we were looking at the the standard and, and the system around that and what we should do. And this study sort of, you know, was pretty central to what we were looking at because what this study had done was picked a particular level crossing and that was obstructed by vegetation. And so they observed drivers going across that crossing, how fast they went on approach and um, how much time they spent looking for trains. And then they cut the vegetation back to provide more sighting distance for motorists. And I think, Drew, I suppose in the results of this study, they said that the that people looked earlier and then they didn't check as much once they thought that they could see more and they increased their speed. And Wild and Ward in that paper concluded that providing greater lateral sighting distance didn't do anything to change the actual risk level because of the, the, the drives of the vehicle sped up. So what do you think of that study then, Drew? And so I guess I'm in two minds. On the one hand, I think this is the sort of phenomenon that causes people to believe in risk compensation. So people start with a protection that seems to make total sense. Let's improve visibility. And then they discover, hey, the crossing didn't get safer. So they're searching for a theory that explains why the mitigation didn't work. On the other hand, this study has lots of variables it's got anomalies in the data that aren't explained by any theory, including risk compensation. Like, most of these people kept looking to their right more than their left, and the authors just had no idea why that might be the case. And so if you've got a study that has lots and lots of ways of interpreting interpreting data that's got full of lots of anomalies in it, then it's easy to claim that it supports your theory. But if you were genuinely designing an experiment to risk, test risk compensation properly, this is not how you design the experiment. It's an experiment designed to do something else and they can't explain anything. And so they use risk compensation as the only explanation for the data. And so I think that's the problem is we've got definitely this real thing that happens that we put in place mitigations and they don't always work the way we think they work. In fact, that was the explanation, reason why Peltzman started off as well is he was saying that, look, lots of these people who are telling us to put seatbelts in cars and to have speed limits and drunk driving enforcing, they're predicting big gains in safety, and we haven't seen those big gains in safety. 
So he was searching for a reason why. And I think that's true. The people who were talking about seatbelts were massively overestimating the effect that they would have. Yeah, and I think just when I was reflecting on that paper again, having seen the preparation that you've done for this, I thought, well, where you're where, where you're still talking about um, an individual behaviour, uh, which is driven by the individual's perceptions of risk, we're right back at the start of the episode now about you know behaviour will change um, with with the perception of risk, but that's not to say that putting in level crossing protection or grade separation is people are going to find ways to actually you know still hurt you know still hurt themselves by driving through boom gates or driving up onto railway tracks. Yeah, the history of level crossing tells us that nothing we put in place as a protection is going to work as well as we think it is. And because people behave in weird ways, that's self-evidently true. So you've just you've taken us through Peltzman and, and Wild and and the theory in support of, of risk compensation or and or risk homeostasis theory. What's the what's the counter argument? Okay, so the counter-argument is fairly straightforward and is backed up by a lot of psychological evidence. And it comes in a few parts. The first one is just that people are very, very poor at estimating risk. So any theory that says that we carefully balance out our target level of risk needs to somehow take into account the fact that we don't know what our current level of risk is. So we can't possibly be regulating it accurately. The most we can do is be regulating our perceived risk. Yeah, I think I read in one of the papers that people consistently underestimate the risk that they're exposed to while driving by, you know, as much as 40%. Yeah. And if we underestimate our risk, then that should be working in the exact opposite way for risk compensation. That should mean that we are constantly taking more and more risk, whereas in fact, we're not. The second thing is that people's perception of risk goes up and down due to all sorts of things other than the risk itself. And one of the things that we do know about is that things that are regulatory, like asking someone to wear a seatbelt, can actually increase their perceived risk of driving. So a driver wearing a seatbelt, that reminds them that driving is dangerous. So even though their actual risk is lower, their perceived risk has gone up instead of down. And similar things happen on rollover bars on quad bikes. The presence of the bars reminds you of the risk that the thing might roll over. So... Those things create a real problem for the theory that we regulate stuff in the right direction because they suggest that we would be regulating in the exact opposite way. Now, well, it's fair to say that those psychological theories are much more robust than the theories presented by Peltzman and Wild. I don't think it's fair to use them as evidence against risk compensation because ultimately this is the same thing that they're doing is it's taking a theory and applying it to the data when it's something that we should be able to directly measure and observe. So I want to pull out a couple of papers that look at the evidence that actually says whether risk compensation happens or not. First one is by Levin and Miller. It's called Risk Compensation Literature, The Theory and Evidence. It's published in 2000 in a journal that at the time was called Crush Prevention and Injury Control. It's now just called the Journal of Traffic Injury Prevention. It's a fairly specialised journal, uh, but it's definitely reputable. And as the title of the paper suggests, this is a literature review. Uh, It starts off more of a sort of narrative review, providing really quite a fair and balanced summary of the theory of risk compensation and the criticisms. And then it has a more systematic review style look at the evidence. And so it covers sort of broadly speaking, three types of papers. The first one is stuff that directly sets out to replicate Peltzman's results. So some of these are really interesting because they use the exact same traffic data that Peltzman used. 
And then some of them are more conceptual replications where they look at other countries to see if the same thing can be found there. And the results are really, really mixed. Some of the studies show no compensation effect. Some show that there might be an effect. Some show that there is probably an effect, but that it's small. And the conclusion, um, this is a conclusion both in some of those studies and it's the conclusion that uh, Levin and Miller conclude, is that whether there's an effect or not is highly sensitive to exactly how you create your model, exactly what data you include or exclude, and exactly what year you start or finish your analysis. Now, when authors say things like that, when they say the existence of the effect is highly dependent on all of these things, basically what they're saying is that if there was a real effect, it would be robust regardless of how you crunched the data. The fact that it only shows up when you crunch the data in very specific ways is a good reason to believe that there's no effect. So the next thing they did is they moved on to looking at enforcement of some specific rules, and they then looked at some studies of individual driver behavior. So these should be a bit less sensitive to the statistical crunching, but they still came up with very mixed results. Some studies showing no effect, some studies showing no significant effect, but maybe an effect, some showing that there is an effect, but it's small in size. But this is a 2000 paper. So we've cautioned on the show before about looking at stuff that is too old. I have sort of looked to see how much people have tried to follow up. And it seems to be that after a sort of flurry of papers criticizing the idea, showing that there was no evidence for it, no one has really done a strong follow-up study of just the general idea of risk compensation. It was one of those fashionable ideas, turned out not to be true, disappeared, that sort of lingers around in this zombie life. But there have been a bunch of studies about much more specific things. So there's a whole bunch of studies actually in the HIV literature and in the vaccine literature. The one I'm going to pull out looks specifically at the question of bicycle helmets. Uh, but this is typical of the type of thing that gets published. Uh, so, David, you want to have a go at pronouncing these names? You're much better than I am at all the names. Oh, well, so, so I suppose the idea of the bicycle helmet literature, um, Drew, for risk compensation is that if people are made to wear or, or are wearing bicycle helmets, then they'll ride their bike more dangerously and you'll still have the same number of accidents and injuries. Is that... Is that why we're going here? That's, that's why we're going here, yeah. Okay. So this paper was, thanks for the hospital pass, Marsha Esamelikia, uh, Igor Radin, and Raphael Gretz-Peter, and Jake Oliver. So they looked at this specific question of whether wearing bicycle helmets encourage people to, for into more riskier cycling behaviour. Yep. Thanks, David. And th this is a much more of a systematic review. So typical process here is you search for papers using a set of keywords, you pull out every paper that matches the keywords. You get a couple of different authors to read the abstracts and select the ones that are relevant for your study. You then look at the methods and you classify the papers based on the quality of the methods. So they found 23 relevant studies. Eight of them were based on surveys. So basically people self-reported risky behavior. Eight of them were based on crash data. And seven of them were based on experiments. And fairly typical for this sort of literature, only three of the studies actually compared the same cyclists without helmets and later with helmets. So there's a very small number of studies that directly test the question. So 23 studies, only two of them confirmed the idea of risk compensation. Both of them were from the same lab. They shared authors. 18 of the studies, including all of the really good ones, didn't show risk compensation. In fact, 10 of them showed the opposite. 
they showed that people who wear a bike helmet exhibit safer cycling, cycling behavior than those who don't. So the authors are really careful. They, they say that the systematic review doesn't show risk compensation in this case, but it doesn't rule out the possibility of risk compensation as a general thing. But it's interesting that every time we test risk compensation in a specific case like this, it comes up with the same result. Doesn't work in this particular case, might still exist as a general thing. So I, I think to finish off, David, uh, we've got an extract that I'll ask you to read, if you're willing, uh, from a paper by Barry Bless, published in the journal Safety in 2016, called Risk Compensation, Revisited and Rebutted. And this is mainly just a commentary paper, uh, but I think Bless does a good job of going through all the examples that you get used to support risk compensation. And he explains how you should think about each of these individual studies, why you shouldn't just take this individual study and use it as good evidence. And, and so this is what he concludes. So true. Risk compensation theory is often used as a smokescreen by some who are opposed to tough safety measures such as helmet legislation and even voluntary helmet use. Policymakers may also use it as a crutch to avoid having to make hard decisions. If taken as proven, it could seriously inhibit prevention research because logically, if all safety measures are offset by risk compensation behaviour, then why bother with any of them? However, this is how science works or is supposed to work. We identify a problem, we formulate a theory or a hypothesis as part of a solution, and then we test that hypothesis as best we can. The best means using the most powerful designs and measures available. We then publish all the evidence from our studies and respond openly and fully to any criticisms. If we're forced to accept that our theory is wrong or it has been disproven, then we go back to the drawing board and reformulate it. In contrast to the best of my knowledge, few have tried to test risk compensation theory empirically. And by empirically, I mean using a randomized trial design rather than methods that are essentially observational. Nor has anyone who is convinced of the truth of risk compensation theory offered any plausible interventions to promote safety other than somehow persuading people to reset their risk-taking thermostat to a lower level. But how this can be done is never explained. Those convinced that risk compensation theory has been proven rarely cite work that fails to support the risk homeostasis theory. We don't often find discussions of the corollary that fewer safety measures should result in less risk-taking. It is also noteworthy that so much emphasis is placed on examples from car crashes and far less on data from other injuries where the theory should work in the same way. And finally, and most damningly, the steady decline in injury death rates is either dismissed or left unexplained. So th thanks for reading that for us, David. Now, I think that's a pretty much fair summary of where we're at once we look at the evidence. So you're right to move on to some practical takeaways or anything else you wanted to say? No, let's, let's get stuck into the practical takeaways because I'm interested to see where you're going to go here. Okay, so, so I think the first one is that risk compensation and risk homeostasis, they're really interesting ideas, and so they're really attractive for people to talk about and sound like they know something about safety, but they're just not supported by the evidence. So please don't propagate the misunderstanding. Don't use them as excuses or cool things to say when talking about risk. The second one is be particularly wary when people use theories like this as an argument against doing something that will improve safety. It's quite okay, and we should, ask for evidence for or against a specific control or mitigation. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't think that will work. I, I think we need evidence. I think we need to know whether this is going to be effective before we spend money on it. But risk compensation has been used as if it is evidence against things, 
as if it's evidence against vaccinations, HIV prevention programs, uh, recently respiratory masks for COVID-19, and improved safety standards for cars and quad bikes. It's not, it shouldn't be used as evidence against something. At the very most, it should be a reason that causes you to want to go out and test something to ask for evidence. The third one is a bit more meta, which is that how we go about reading scientific literature. You Just because someone does lots of citing of literature or quotes from scientific literature doesn't mean that their interpretation of that literature is rigorous and scientific. The whole point of pseudoscience is that people get away with it because it looks like science. And risk compensation theory basically draws all of its stuff from taking other studies and placing new interpretation over those other studies that perhaps even the original authors would not have agreed with. Um, and it involves lots of cherry picking, picking out studies that support the idea and ignoring very similar studies that say the exact opposite. You ought to look at the weight of evidence. And then the final one, I guess, is the exact opposite. Just because the deep part of this isn't real doesn't mean that there isn't a simple and true thing, that not all safety mitigations work as effectively as we think they will. And I think that is always worth bearing in mind. It is always important to measure whether our mitigations work as well as we think they do. It's always okay to ask for evidence for things. It's always okay to be sceptical rather than just assume that, hey, we've put in place a mitigation, therefore it should work. Yeah, I think, Drew, and that was probably my takeaway from the the Level Crossing Railway paper in that um, it, it's easy to think quite simply that, oh, well, let's just improve the, the lateral sighting distance so people can see the trains earlier and think that's going to do better, but really needing to go back and say, well, does that just mean that cars are going to speed up and that the stopping time is exactly the same? So I think, like what you said, when we're playing around with changes in our organisation that come down to how people perceive risk and then how they behave um, because they're not you know, engineering controls or, or something like that, then we, I'd probably just second that point of measuring the effectiveness of the mitiga mitigations that we put in place and whether they're having the outcome that we uh, have intended for them. Yeah. So, so in the case of the railway, I would definitely not say, hey, let's not improve the sighting distance because people will just change their behavior to compensate. I would definitely say, hey, let's test this out on a few sites and measure the effect it has before we spend a fortune doing this at every level crossing around the country. So any other thing we'd like to know, anything we should invite the listeners to? Look, I, I'd really like to hear um, some stories of, of people where they've had, where they think that they've, uh, they've observed this risk compensation happening with a particular risk control or, or, or safeguard that they've put into their organisation and, and um, where they think that it's had an unintended consequence of uh, changing the behaviour in a way that they hadn't hadn't planned, which really didn't do anything to re reduce the risk. So, yeah, I'd be really interested in those sorts of stories, Drew. So that's it for this week. Um, we hope you've... Oh, no, Drew, before I do that, before I do that, the question. Here you go. The question for this week was, is risk compensation a real thing? And your answer? Well, it's definitely not real enough for us to use it as an argument against trying to improve safety. It probably is just real enough that we should ask for evidence about the efficacy of safety measures. So now it's, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join in the conversation on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 